in Psalm 133. It's a very short psalm. There's only three verses, so I think we could cover, cover it today. So in Psalm 133, starting in verse 1, Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is that brothers and sisters would dwell together in unity as one. It is like precious ointment, that's oil, upon the head that runs down upon the beard. I'll read, I'm reading out the King James, but this is a different translation on the screen. It is like sweet-smelling oil that is poured over the high priest's head that runs down his beard, flowing over his robes. And he's like, that's gross. That sounds odd. What in the heck is that all about? We'll talk about that in a little bit. It is like gentle rain from Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. It is there that the Lord has promised his blessing of eternal life, of eternal life. Jesus, I pray that we, as we look at these three short verses in your word that you gave to David by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by your great might and power, all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you've preserved this eternal truth so that we could know your heart and your will and your mind and, and your desire for us to dwell in unity. And so, Lord, I pray today as we look at this subject that our hearts would be open that you would um, be with me, Lord, you'd be my strength, you'd be my health, you'd be my wisdom, and be my ability to communicate. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, turn the lights on in the, in the caverns of everyone's heart, that they would just illuminate things that you want to share with them, whatever it is for them specifically, I pray. And I pray, Lord, for the body of Christ here at Grace Baptist, the extended family that's not with us, I pray that you would reach out and comfort and encourage them. Those that have maybe uh, gone astray, that you would, with your love and your goodness, bring them back. And for those of us that are here, that you would just build us up and encourage us and thankful that we're here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So unity, unity within. Unity with, from within. So unity within. So first of all, unity comes from having the same spirit. Same spirit. It's really hard to unify with people if you don't have Christ in common. Now, I guess some people could rally around politics and some people could, like you could have unity in sports, right? We're on the same volleyball team. You could have unity, like I, I have, this is my favorite football team. Hey, that's my favorite football team. You could rally around um, different hobbies and things like that. But if you're going to take someone from the four corners of the earth and you're going to put them in a room... When you have Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you could have real unity. But it's not a given. It's not a shoo-in, right? Even people that have the Holy Spirit, that have the same hope of heaven, that believe the same gospel, that have the same Jesus, sometimes you get people together and they just don't get, to get, get along together, right? Sometimes people, like, it's easier to grow grow old than it is to grow up. You could have people that have been saved for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years, and sometimes they're not growing up. They've not grown up in the Lord. And sometimes people get territorial in church. Sometimes people get odds uh, in the church. Sometimes people, their pride gets in the way, ego gets in the way. And it's not unique to us. I mean, uh, they had that problem back in the first century, and it's not like we've grown out of that because... God has, he wants us to at least pay attention to this idea of unity. And he says, how wonderful it is when brothers and sisters get along and they dwell in unity. So unity uh, has to start with having at least receiving the Holy Spirit. And that comes by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. It'll be on the screen. For by one Spirit... Are we all baptized into one body? And don't think of baptism here as water baptism. This is being baptized. Remember, Jesus said, John came baptizing with water. I come and I'll baptize you with the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said that? So when you have faith in Jesus, he, the word baptizo just means to be immersed. When we use the object of the baptistry, it signifies that you believe in the death, the burial, fully immersed in the grave, and the resurrection. 
When you receive Jesus and he baptizes you, he fully immerses you with his spirit. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're bond or free, uh, yellow, yellow, purple, black, and yellow, and white, they're precious in his sight. It doesn't matter your nationality. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. So unity comes from the spirit. And as we were reading in the text, he says, how precious is, is unity, and he likens it unto oil. And when the high priest, or it would be the high priest, either he was anointed to be the high priest, or a king was anointed, the symbol that they would use of this anointing was oil. Oil. And I want to bring this point up. If there's no oil in your car, unless it's a stinking Tesla, okay, I got to say this nowadays. (laughs) If there's no oil, maybe Teslas use oil, I don't know, but they're not a combustion car. So if there's no oil in your car, there's going to be friction. And friction that makes heat can cause serious problems. Michael would know this probably more than any of us in here because he went to mechanic school. But your spark plugs, right? The timing, I don't know how all of it works, but combustion engines, there's explosions that are going on. And your pistons that are going up in your... You have a four-cylinder car, there's four of them. You have a V8, there's eight cylinders going on. And they're all firing, all these little explosions. And it's pushing this one down and pushing this one up, and it's turning things in your car. Well, those pistons that are encased in in the, the, uh, the head of the motor, when they're going up and down, if there's no oil with all of that metal on metal, expands. And and when there's a lot of friction, um, if there's nothing to lubricate that, it can cause serious, serious, serious damage. Turn to the next slide here, if you would. So my first car was a Volkswagen Scirocco. Uh, That's not my original car, but it was very similar to that, and it was red. I remember one time I was going to, I think it was Blockbuster Video, um, and I was in there looking at movies. Back in the day when you could just like look at you're reading the VHS or whatever, uh, seeing if you wanted to rent that movie or whatnot. And someone came in and said, hey, someone's red car out there is on fire. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, crap. And that was my car. The, flam- the hood was on fire. And oh, man, it was terrible. The fire truck had to come and everything and put it out. Um, oil, friction, heat, problems. My, my next car in high school was a... Nissan pickup truck, four-wheel drive, I loved that thing. Always out in the woods, always out four-wheeling, hunting, getting stuck in the mud. I just kind of loved that whole part of that. Um, and I got the oil changed at one time, and they forgot to put the oil back in the car. And my engine seized. I took them to court, and the judge said, well, did you check the oil after the, after the oil change? And I said, no, I'm like 16 years old. I'm like, no, I thought that was the professional's job. And he's like, well, you should, son, tough lessons. You should have checked the oil. I'm like, that's why I took it to get the oil changed. I didn't know immediately I had to check the oil. Um, but they completely forgot to put the oil back in the car after they drained it. And so, <laughs> so that car... And then the bus at the bottom, you'll notice there's flames on the hood. Um, Well, there was literal flames on the hood after a while because rather than having an oil cap, I had a rag in the top because it's hard to find parts for a 1955 international bus. And so you put the rag in the top where the oil's supposed to, you know, be kept into the engine. Loss of oil, heat, friction, that thing caught on fire as well. You're like, you don't have a good track record at all. In the first like three years of owning automobiles, well, lessons learned, lessons learned. So where there's two moving parts, there's always friction. What's going to reduce the friction? Oil. When the priest and the king was anointed, they used oil. When the Bible says to the Christian, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, he's picturing oil 
You have the lubricant, in other words, to have relationships with others to soften the friction, to lubricate the friction so that there's not heated moments where things are going to break down or catch on fire or just seize altogether. All right? So when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit likened to oil. <clears throat> so in the Old Testament, oil was used for anointing kings and priests. For example, to the priest, look at Leviticus 8.12. And he poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head, who became the, you know, the, the order of the high priest there, and anointed him and sanctified him. Sanctifying him just means to set him apart for that purpose. Now to the king in the Old Testament, he says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head, and he kissed him, and he said, it, uh, Is it not because the Lord has anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? So you see, to the priest and to the king, oil was put on them to anoint them, set them apart for that purpose. In the new covenant, this side of the cross, we're not under the old covenant. We don't have priests and kings. Jesus is our priest and our king in the new covenant. Um, but every believer is anointed with the Holy Spirit because every believer is a king and a priest with equal access, equal worth, and equal value this side of the cross. Amen. I remember growing, well, I, I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't get to see him until later on. And the first place I went to Bible college, the big scuttlebutt, and this is kind of a smaller megachurch, a mini megachurch, if you will, um, the scuttlebutt was the pastor always used this verse in the Old Testament, touch not the Lord's anointed, touch not the Lord's anointed. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, you know, you know what it meant? Don't question my authority. Don't check the facts. Anything I say is almost ex-cathedra, like the Pope, where he speaks infallibly. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. That's an Old Testament idea of don't, you know, like the king is set apart, and so don't lay your hands upon him. But he was applying it to him as a pastor, and I thought, um, sorry for a pit. <laughs> he was applying it to him as a pastor, meaning he gets this carte blanche uh, blank check to do whatever he wants as a pastor, within reason, of course, and you're not to question his authority. And I'm like, that didn't sit well with me. And I, I don't do well with mass formation psychosis where everyone has to fall into line and to follow one sort of individual. I don't do well with that. And so I started questioning that. Does that really what the, is that really what that means? Touch not the Lord's anointed, like the pastor gets to do, gets to do with whatever because he's the anointed one. And I guess everyone else isn't anointed if he is, right? So I thought, are, are we really living in the old covenant where he's like the king and the priest at the same time? That seems odd to me. And I went to Bible college to figure that stuff out, and I did. I figured it out, and he was wrong. That guy was way wrong. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for example. Look at this. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God by us. But he confirming us and anointing us with you in Christ is God. And he has sealed us and has given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And I re-looked that word up again, earnest. I knew what it meant, but I wanted to look it up again. <clears throat> just to confirm it, it's the same idea that when you make a purchase on a house, you put a down payment. And you sign off and you say it's non-refundable. So if you back out of the deal, you don't get your earnest money back. They still use that term in uh, real estate, your earnest money. Um, so what this, what this says to us for a Christian is when you got saved, you got anointed with the Holy Spirit, you got sealed with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is going to come back for his purchased possession but he put a non-refundable down payment on you, and the deposit was the Holy Spirit, and everyone is anointed. If you've been saved, you've been anointed. So it's not just the pastor. It's not just the weird priest. It's not just the self-proclaimed monarch king. It's every believer has been saved and sealed and anointed with the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's good news. We can have unity now. 
because it's not some pyramid scheme where the guy that went to you know, theological seminaries has all the degrees is at the top and everyone else is at the bottom. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. You have the same amount of God. You have the same access as anyone in this room if you have received the Holy Spirit and the anointing. You are the anointed. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you've received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and no lie, and as he has taught you, abide in him. That's a liberating passage for any believer. It doesn't mean that people in the church don't have the gifts of teaching. Brian is not here, but he teaches Sunday school, and I, I believe he has the gift of teaching. Carrie was teaching the kids in VBS. There's people that have gifts of teaching. Uh, Debbie teaches the kids in Onawana, VBS. Um, uh, Becky teaches the youth group all the time, uh, and her and Joe tag team. And so there's people that have gifts of teaching, so it doesn't mean that we don't need teaching teachers, but what he is saying is because you have the anointing, he's the ultimate authority, he's the ultimate teacher, you go with him. You go with him. Yeah, people have the gift of teaching, but you have the teacher and the teaching that lives in you. Bless you, bless you. I'll bless you as a king, and I'll bless you as a priest, because look at this next passage. Kings and priests, kings and priests. Look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1. Even from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, <coughs> excuse me, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This used to be an ancient Baptist doctrine that we, we had to, as historically necessitated, we had to make this a big point in church history. It was called the priesthood of the believer. This was a big contentious point because there was a religious organization that said, well, <coughs> excuse me, we're the priests. I'm not going to pick on any, any religious group, but you might pick them out of this. We're the priests. We went to school. We know Latin. And we'll tell you what the Bible says. If you want your sins forgiven, come to us and we maybe will let you pass go and, and into heaven. We might lessen the sentence in purgatory if you pay the church more money. Hmm. You guys don't know any better, do you? <laughs> and so the Baptists came along and they're like, what? The Bible says everyone's anointed. The Bible says everyone has access. The Bible says it's a whosoever. The Bible says it's not the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to conquer the, the, you know, the, the clergy laity thing. Uh, he says it's, it's an equal opportunity God. It's an equal access God. It's a whosoever will let him come and take of the water of life freely God. It seems to be a universal invitation to where if you receive Christ and you get his spirit, you could understand the scriptures. That's why it was called the Dark Ages, because during this dark time, they chained the Latin Vulgate Bible to the pulpit, and, and no common person had access to it. Dark, wicked, evil, in the name of God. That doesn't sit well, does it, huh? <laughs> You're like, yeah, I got 10 Bibles at home. Okay, now that we have all the Bibles... There was, there was a time where we didn't, and the people didn't have access, but now we have access. So you're a king, and you're a priest. You know, if I'm a, if I'm a priest, you think I want you to know these truths of the Bible? Not during the Dark Ages. We don't understand the freedom that we really have in America and as Christians. We have the Bible in English. We have the Holy Spirit you could pick multitudes of translations to make it easier to understand and compare, and you could have access to the Greek, you have access to the Hebrew. Uh, you could read the Latin Vulgate even if you wanted to and study Latin. You could do all of that. Uh, but there was a time where people didn't have that access, and now we do. And now you know, 
You're a king and you're a priest because Jesus has anointed you with his Holy Spirit and says that's who you are. Um, So we need the oil, in other words, this anointing to prevent frictions. So if I were a shade tree mechanic, I'd give you some wisdom. Wherever there's two moving parts, there's always friction. So you're going to need some lubricant. You're going to need some oil. We need the Holy Spirit oil in our marriages. We need the Holy Spirit oil in our places of work. We need the Holy Spirit oil in our schools. We need the Holy Spirit of oil in our country and our government. Man, can you imagine if you're, if you're in the Senate, right, 100 senators, and we got 50 on this side, on the right, we got 50, on the left, and, could, and, and you know, when they, someone gives a speech, if it's for their political party, one side will stand up and applaud. You ever watch that on C-SPAN? And then the other one says something that they don't like, and they'll get up over here. And they go back and forth, back and forth. It's the most ridiculous show. Of uh, uh, It's so funny. They're peacocking and all that grandstanding, and uh, it's just so funny. Could you imagine, though, and that's a, that's a very obvious display of division and contention. And there's a lot of friction there. It's really uncomfortable when you see a president or whatever and someone behind him. Everyone else is applauding, but the people that don't support him right behind him are not applauding or, like, ripping things up or writing things and being totally disrespectful. You could, like, see the, like, division and you could feel the tension. Could you imagine if they had the Holy Spirit? That's a starting place. Could you imagine if they actually started to walk in that spirit that they received? <clears throat> it's one thing to receive the Holy Spirit. It's another thing to appropriate his life. Because there's churches all over the place that are divided, and they have the Holy Spirit, but they're just not living from the Holy Spirit, right? So it's one thing to receive the Holy Spirit. That's a great starting place. It's another thing to walk in the, in the Spirit. Ephesians. Four, three. I put multiple translations up here just so you could get different ideas. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. King James. There is one body and one spirit. Try your best to let God's spirit keep your hearts united. Do this by living at peace. Do your best to preserve the unity which the spirit gives by means of the peace that binds you together. So he says, make this a priority that you would strive for unity. Now, how can we have unity? Here's the question. When, here's the answer, when the sheep do not focus on other sheep, but when the sheep focus on the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. You know, in Sunday school, I think Rick was talking about something, and it reminded, you reminded me of a passage, Rick, uh, we were talking about physical features and stuff like that, and like not caring about what other people think. Well, the Bible talks about that too, to make your point. And he says, those comparing themselves among themselves and those measuring themselves among themselves are not wise, right? The Bible even talks about what you're talking about. And how can we have unity? Not when we're comparing and measuring and, and like, uh, that's probably the, the whole culture of social media is like the likes and dislikes and how many friends and disfriends and, you know, comparing and all that kind of stuff. Well, how can we have unity? Not when we're measuring off of each other. <coughs> Excuse me, not when we're comparing uh, ourselves to each other, not when the sheep are focused on what other sheep are doing, but when the sheep are focused on what the good shepherd's doing. <clears throat> I've used this example before, but I, use, I just used this in couples therapy the other day. Uh, look at this next thing about tuning your heart. So um, when the musicians get together, I know the tuner that Joe has. It's a poly tuner. I have the same one. And it's really cool because you click it with your foot, your guitar is plugged in, you hit the E string on the top. And it, it's, a, it's a meter. If it's, if it's too sharp, it'll go over, and it'll show you, it'll be like red, red, red. If it's too flat, it'll go under. But right, it gets green. Right when it goes 12 o'clock, and it's in tune, 12 o'clock. <clears throat> I've been in multiple bands and multiple situations where you could come to a jam session or you're playing your bit or whatever, and if I show up and I'm like, hey guys, let's get it, let's get all in tune. 
<clears throat> I could hit my, my string, but if I'm, at, if I'm too flat or too sharp, and people start tuning off of my guitar, they're going to be out of tune even though we're in tune with each other. Does that make sense? So you don't want to, sheep don't tune to other sheep, and we don't tune to each other. There needs to be something far greater than what we think is in tune, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the way that we are to be in tune and in unity and in harmony with, e with each other is when I get in tune with Jesus, you get in tune with Jesus, you get in tune with Jesus, everyone personally gets in tune with Jesus, then when we collectively get together, we're in tune with each other. Does that make sense? So tuning to Jesus, the result brings unity. Well, how do we get in tune with the Good Shepherd and walk in the Spirit then? Well, beyond reading your Bible and praying, which is the easy go-to answer, we could also do this. We could focus and get to know who God is and where God is. Two paramount things. Who is God? Where is God? Uh, we could ask... Who does he say that he is, and who does he say that we are? That's paramount. And we could be in fellowship in an organic, unreligious, unconditional love relationship with the Lord and with his other sheep, which are kings and priests also. Amen? It doesn't sound competitive, does it? The original church had problems. Look at the screen if you would. I thought this was funny. Someone wrote this, and I, I grabbed it a long time ago, and I forgot I had it. But when the church began on earth, the pastor, Jesus, was being tried and killed as a guilty criminal, though he wasn't. The head of the deacon board, Peter, was out cussing, swearing, and denying the pastor and the church. The church treasurer, Judas, who was in charge of the money, who stole money from the church, betrayed Jesus and was out planning to commit suicide. Two other members, James and John, were positioning themselves to be the most respected in the church and pitting for position and prestige. And most all the other deacons had run away, and about the only one left uh, who showed any signs of faithfulness were a few ladies from the church, Mary and Martha. It's pretty interesting, right? And it's, it's an accurate take. It's an accurate take. Uh, is Debbie in here? No? She's not? Well, hats off to all of you guys for all, of the, all that you did with Vacation Bible School. Um, I pulled this story out because... It just reminded me uh, of just kind of the spirit of what we were trying to accomplish here, Vacation Bible School, and all the hard work everyone did to it. But listen to this uh, a little story here. One year, a church was having a Vacation Bible School, and a little girl brought her first-time visitor. And we had some first-time visitors uh, this year as well. I think Debbie said about six. The little boy that she had brought was without his whole right arm. So he had one arm. The lady in charge of the class thought to herself and prayed that none of the kids would make fun of this little boy missing an arm. At the end of her lesson, she ended up making a mistake she thought the kids of the class would have made. As they usually did, she closed uh, the class by having the kids join their hands together and say, here is the church, here is the steeple, open it up and see all the people. You remember doing that? Not kid, not kid to kid, it's you do it yourself, right? You're like, here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up and see all the people, right? So she, hello, <laughs> she, she did that, <clears throat> but as they usually did, um, she did that. But here is the church, and oh wait, Right in the middle of doing what she had always did, she had realized that the little boy without an arm would not be able to do this and that it would, would embarrass him. To the teacher's surprise, the little girl that invited this boy without an arm reached her hand over to his and said, Josh, let's make the church together. That is so cool. If you saw that, that would just totally bring tears to your eyes, right? Let's, she, he only has one arm. He can't do that. Let's make church together. So uh, they did it. What's the point? Well, the point is, uh, you know, Christianity is not a spectator sport. It can be for some time, but it's not designed to be that way. Here's a, here's a cool little acronym for you. Team. Team. You could give this one to Joe when he goes back to coaching. 
Team. Together, each accomplishes more. Team. Together, each accomplishes more. I don't know who said this, but uh, someone once said, the great task of the church is not only to get sinners into heaven, but to get saints out of bed. <laughs> okay, check this Woody Allen quote out. I don't support Woody Allen, but he, he said some funny things along the way. This one's kind of funny. 80% of life is just showing up. 80% of life is just showing up. Here's a quote I really like. Chloe's at work, by the way. Um, but she said this one time I was taking her to school and it was snowing. Dad, you know why God made all the snowflakes different? Why, Chloe? So people can have a good life. Six years. We're driving, I remember it specifically, because snowflakes were falling down. And at where we were at, Utah, they were huge, huge flakes. And um, she just made that observation. Isn't that, isn't that cool? In God's creation, no two snowflakes are alike. But together, it just there's unity in the diversity of creation. I don't know why people can't figure it out, but <coughs> Chloe, the six-year-old girl, just had that in mind. Like, God did it so we could just all get along and have a good life. Now, uh, I'd like for you to either take your Bibles or to turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at some thoughts from chapter 12. So chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians, a very divisive church, a very carnal church, a very immature church. He said, I can't speak unto you spiritual. I have to speak unto you as carnal and fleshly, as babes in Christ, because there's divisions amongst you. There's no unity. Some people say I'm of a Paul. Some people say I'm of Apollos. And he says, is Christ divided? Did I die for you? Was I buried and rose again from you? And he says, some people water, some people uh, plant, but it's God that gives the increase. God is the one that's doing this. Quit getting so distracted with the horizontal and getting campish. And I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I do this. I do that. He's like, this is so divisive. Focus on God and Christ. Get in tune with him, and then you'll be in tune with each other. Pay attention to the voice of the good shepherd, because there's a lot of contrary voices out there that could get us not focused on Jesus. Now, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but they are all from the same Spirit. There are different ways to serve, but we serve the same Lord. There are different ways that God works in people, but it's the same God who works in all of us to do everything. Something from the Spirit can be seen in each person. The Spirit gives this to each one to help others. A person has only one body, but it has many parts. Yes, there are many parts, but all those parts are still just one body. Christ is like that too. Some of us are Jews and some of us are not. Some of us are slaves and some of us are free. But we were all baptized to become one body through one spirit. And we were all given the one spirit. And a person's body has more than one part. It has many parts. If the whole body were an eye, it would not be able to hear. If the whole body were, to, were an ear, it would not be able to um, smell anything. If each part of the body were the same part, there would be no body. That's a good point. But as it is, God put the parts in the body as he wanted them. He made a place for each one. So there are many parts, but only one body. All of you together are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of that body. Amen. Everyone has worth. Everyone has significance. It's not, it's not a matter of who's better. It's not better. It's just different. We need to be different. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying the same thing, but from a different perspective. We need that. When I was asked the other day in my practicum site where I do clinical psychology, why don't you tell people that you're a pastor? I told them it was because my worth and my value comes from my position in Christ, not from my position in church, because I know the way people think, because they got this like pyramid thing going on, and I'm like, I'm not, no, 
I don't want to tell people. I'd rather just be known as a Christian. I'm just a guy that has the Holy Spirit, just as you. We all have equal value and equal access. It reminds me of this example. I tried to find a picture of it, but I couldn't. So I just, this is a mock picture. It's not the real one because this church is from the 16th century. It's called the Church of Lamps or the House of Many Lamps. There's a village in the southern Europe that boasted of having a church called the House of Many Lamps. When it was built in the 16th century, the architect provided no light for the inside of the church except every seat had on it a place to put a lamp. This is obviously before electricity and before um, LED lights on a cell phone, obviously. Each Sunday night, as the people gathered, they would bring their lanterns and slip them into the bracket in their seat. When someone stayed away, uh, that place would be dark. And if a very many stayed away, the darkness became greater for the whole. It was the regular presence of each person that lit up the church. Christian, you are the light inside and outside of the church. Isn't that an interesting concept? In his book, Salt and, Salt and Pepper, <laughs> Salt and Pepper, uh, Vance Havner spoke of his, da- <clears throat> of his dad. He said, my father was faithful to the house of God when he felt like it and when he didn't. When the preaching was good and when the preaching wasn't good, my father was there. And then he wrote this poem. Check this out. It'll be on the screen. Yeah, there it is. Whether the weather be good or whether the weather be not, or hot. Whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be not. Whether the weather, he weathered the weather, whether he liked it or not. Clever, huh? And he went on to say this. (coughs) Another thing that I like about my dad at church is that he did his sleeping at home. He never used the church for an adult nursery. (laughs) I thought that was funny. If we're going to have unity, we must have the same spirit and the same purpose. We're almost done here, but Philippians 1.27 puts it really, really well. And again, Paul's writing from prison to the church at Philippi to encourage them. You would think like he'd be the one needing the encouragement because he didn't know if he's going to get out or stay or do a life sentence or lose his head. So he's like, if, if I have this freedom, can I just write this letter to this group of Christians in Philippi? And in the beginning of it, he says, only let your conduct as becomes the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or else I'm absent, not able to, I may hear of your affairs, affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. Striving together. I'm saying it over and over again because I'm, as I'm saying striving together, I'm thinking about talking about something I shouldn't because it's a total diversion. Because I've been researching on swarm bots and hive minds, and I don't want to talk about it. Don't do it. Avoid the temptation. (laughs) Okay, we'll save that for another time. But the Bible is saying, like, he wants us to strive together um, and, and and to have the same focus, the same spirit, the same Jesus, same God, same authority, God's word, same gospel, same purpose, uh, to know God and to make him known. And Paul's prayer is that, that not only the church at Philippi, but the church here at Garden Grove would uh, be on the same page. So how do we strive together? Well, he kind of answers this by using Jesus as an example. Um, and he kind of encourages the Christians at the same church in chapter 2 in Philippians. It'll be up on the screen. If there is therefore any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tenderness and mercies, then fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, (coughs) being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Do not let each one look upon the things of his own, but each man of the things of another's. And then he says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if you keep reading on, he says, 
who, who didn't think it was robbery uh, um, to be equal with God, but humbled himself and came down to earth and, be, and became, uh, you know, and took on the body and was obedient even unto the point of death. And so he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. You know how easy it would be if you were Jesus to walk around and feel superior to everyone? <laughs> I mean, some people think they're pretty much the bee's knees. They got some stuff figured out, right? They got some equations figured out. They got some science figured out. They got some physics figured out. They got some economics figured out. Could you imagine being Jesus and you're walking... You know exactly how many molecules and, and the compound structure of what all this wood is just by walking up to it because you made it. Could you imagine knowing how many H2O, H2O molecules are left in this bottle, what the, what the compound is of this plastic, what the area, the cubic feet of this room is, and how much air is in it? Could you imagine having all, because he's omni, he has all knowledge, but yet he was humble and he asked questions and he engaged with people and he didn't think himself better. He, didn't, wasn't, he was better. He was far superior, but he didn't come across that way. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So just some, just some bullet point thoughts for you based on that, riffing off that passage there. Is there any consolation in Christ? That just means edifying. <clears throat> encouraging, any comfort of love. That means to build up, to encourage. Any fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, there's real fellowship about spiritual things, not worldly things. And there's, you know, there's overlaps. Be like-minded, be Christ-minded, have the same love. Not selfish uh, to love, to be love, but to love for nothing in return. One accord. Um, it's, I like this example. It's like a net joined together. And a net is basically a bunch of zeros making up of one big accord. Right? If you think about that, that's all a net is. It's a bunch of zeros that make up one big giant accord. One mind, same page, same hymnal, same song. Uh, not with strife or vainglory, not out of selfish ambition or self-promotion. Because a lot of times people get their feelings hurt. I had this quote in this message, but I took it out. If your fur is being rubbed the wrong way, turn the cat around. If your fur is being rubbed the wrong way, just turn the cat around. And that's what this means to me. Uh, you know, not selfish ambition, not self-promotion, uh, but in lowliness. That means humility, uh, modesty, humbleness. Now esteem others better than yourselves. And that's the cure for self-love and, and narcissism. Don't look to your own things, but to the things of others. Not being greedy, not being selfish. Have the mind of Christ. That's appropriating the life of Christ within you to engage those people that are around you. So in conclusion, as we're wrapping this up, it would be hard to be bitter, resentful, divisive, and easily offended if we are letting the mind of Christ be in us, activating his emotions in and through us. I love this passage. I love this passage. I just had a conversation with someone the other day who thought I possibly would have been offended by what they said. And I said, I had, I had not even thought about that. And they were being very sensitive. And I quoted this verse. It'll be up on the screen. It's Psalm 119. Great peace have they which love your word, and nothing shall offend them. Well, things do offend me, but it's going to be... You know people that are hypersensitive and easily offended over everything? In Sunday school, we covered this, kind of when people are running out of seven in life, emotionally speaking, and 10 being the highest, and then the littlest thing gets them to go from seven to 10 like that. But if you're learning how to regulate and you're, you're like <clears throat> slowly idling out of one or a two or a three, you know, you go up and down a little bit. But <coughs> I was just saying like, no, I'm... I, thankful, I, I thank you for your sensitivity to that, but honestly, I'm not easily offended, and not like I'm bragging, but it's going to take a lot. I do get offended, don't get me wrong, <clears throat> but not easily, not easily. And they were so thankful um, that, that they cleared it up. Because I don't want to walk around like, you know, people are afraid to say what really is on their mind, or they can't be themselves, or... Um, that's, you know you're around a legalist when you're not free to be, be yourself, right? 
When you're around someone gracious and merciful, you're free to be yourself. Uh, good, bad, and ugly, and different, all of the above. So here's kind of the concluding thought. The world is waiting to see if what we have is real. Do you like to go over to, when you were a kid, looking at some kids, do you, do you want to go to the house of your friends that's hostile, where mom and dad are like, they're like monkeys throwing feces? Yeah. <laughs> do you want to go, sorry, watch a lot of funny um, animal videos. Um, I mean, it's just hostile, and it's running out of 8, 9, 10 all the time, and there's holes in the wall, and doors are slammed, and, and you know, people just live in separate rooms and do their own thing, and they're like ships passing in the night, and it's just hostile, hostile, hostile. Do you want to go to that, like a, like a dysfunctional family and just, hey, can we play Jenga at your house? No one wants to, like, can't play Jenga because it's so hostile that the table's always moving, Right? Um, you don't want to go there. You want to go to the house where, you know, it's peaceful. Um, there's, it's gentle. It's loving. It's receiving. It's kind. Um, it's all of that. I had to apologize the other day. I came home, um, and there's this big, tall kid wearing a Minions outfit I've never seen before. Chloe and her other friend, and then her other friend, and they're all getting dressed up to go bowling, which I had no clue. And this guy's like six foot something, and I'm like, I just walked in, I said, who are you? <laughs> I couldn't see his face, he's just yellow, giant, and he had overalls on too, and I'm like, who are you? And greeted at my own door. I walk in and I'm like, who are you? And then Jen's like, Neil, you know, Jen, or I mean, <laughs> Chloe, is, she has friends, and I don't think all of her friends really think you like them, and maybe we need to work on that a little bit. And so I am like, yeah, you're right. But I'm not a big fan of like strangers that are taller than me, that are male figures in my house dressed up with masks. I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Thanks, Becky. So we're working on stuff. But the world's waiting to see, I don't even, why don't I even get on that? The world's waiting to see if what we have is real. Oh, um, peaceful homes. Do you want to go to a hostile home or a peaceful home? And when you think about it in a church setting, if there's a church family that's dysfunctional and they're always bitter, bickering, and we can't ever get along, do you think people want to go to that church? No. Just like you wouldn't want to go to a dysfunctional home you wouldn't want to go to a dysfunctional church family either. I'm not saying every church is perfect, because there is no perfect church, but at least we could kind of maybe reduce some of those things that are maybe causing us, because years and years and years of those same like uh, maladaptive behaviors and relational things, that should, that's what Paul says, like, I can't talk to you spiritually because you're still carnal. You're divisive. You can't, you're not, you guys aren't going to hear any of this stuff because you're like, well, he said, she said, remember in 1942 when that happened? Yeah, you know. <laughs> and so he said, I can't address these things. So the world wants to see if what we have is real. Look, there's a good quote. The world at its worst needs a church at its best. It's easy to complain about the world. Oh my word, did you hear about abortion? Did you hear about the judges? Did you hear about Nancy Pansy, Fancy Pelosi? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Did you hear it's it look, the world's an easy target, and it frustrates me too. It irritates me too. But what it also can cause us to do is to not to always just think about the problems and talk about the problems to be a part of the solution. Here, go to this, go to the next slide. It's it's yeah. The world at its worst needs a church at its best. So, in other words, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Right? So, if we are doing our part, that's what the world needs. That's what the world needs. What the world needs. 
John 13, 35. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one towards another. So God is asking Christians to love other Christians who are within the church before we go out and love those who are without the church. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but I'll put it to you this way. God gave the great commandment before he gave the great commission. What's the great commandment? Love God and love others. What's the great commission? Go out into all the world and preach the gospel. But why bring them back to church if we're not even loving each other here? Right? And I'm not saying we're not. Don't get me wrong. But look at the first century church. If they blew it right in the beginning, could it not be 2,000 years later we could, we could, we could have the potential to do the same? We're not, we're not immune from that, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're doing that. I'm just saying it's something to consider to at least be aware of and to work on. Let me close with this. Um, let me close with this poem. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to quote it. It's called The Perfect Church. I think that I shall never see a church that... Hang on, let me start over. I'm starting with my wrong cadence, my wrong poem reading rhythm. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be, a church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues, a church who deacons always deke, and none is proud but all are meek, where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize, where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me, but still will work and pray and plan to make our church the best we can. That's good, right? No perfect churches, but at least we can try to make ours the best that we can. All right, let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you designed the church, you created it, you gave us liberty, you gave us diversity, and now you're asking us in that diversity to have unity. And we know that that's made possible by your Spirit. How do we get the Spirit? Receiving Jesus by faith, believing the gospel. How do we experience this unity? By walking in the Spirit. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to be sensitive, to be self-aware of when we're maybe walking after the flesh or walking in the Spirit. And may we all personally be in tune to the Good Shepherd's voice so that as when the sheep get together, we could all be unified as one flock, as one family. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.